You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the MBDA. This is President Heather Mason. Thank you for listening. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to check out all the previous episodes. Please do us a favor and leave a review. Today's guest is Larry Black, founder of Mount Airy Bicycle and College Park Bicycle in Maryland. His shops have been fixtures for 42 years, and he is a major proponent of cycling from everyone from toddler to pro. The shops are known for catering to special needs and obscure and unusual merchandise. The shops host special events, charities, and were recently featured as one of seven businesses in an annual magazine. I have a feeling this will prove to be a great, you heard it from the retailer conversation, and we're going to dive into specific things from Larry for tips for you to make your business more profitable and successful. Special thanks to Mint Socks for their support of the MBDA. The freshly minted socks are giving away socks for the months of July and June to retailers for their bicycle retailer excellence. Check out Mint Socks at freshlyminted.com. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Welcome. Glad to have you here. I'm so excited about today. You are a staple on our Monday member mingle calls. Everyone seems to know you. So I think before we get into the conversation, I'd just like to give our listeners some background on how you got into the industry. I'm giving it to you. Okay. <laughs> so can you give it to me? <laughs> That's why I wrote all this down. Gee, where'd those notes go? Anyway, here's what I remember. When you write things down, even if you lose it, you remember it. They say we remember most of what we write down and most of what we teach. I was a wrench. I liked motors. I was a little guy. Baseball didn't work for me, so I turned to bicycles and got a 10-speed in 1961. By 1962, I tried putting motors on bicycles. I got a job in a uh, mower and bicycle store. I would volunteer there, 11, 12, and I would try to pilfer motors off of mowers and put them on a bike because that was very small. So this motor was a way for me to, I guess, compensate. And then during high school and college, I went to Ohio University to study photography. I would come back to that store for the summers. And when I lived in town, I'd work on Saturdays too. And I got interested in the bicycle part of it. We'd go downtown for dinner sometime with our parents. And I just remember gawking in the window at these 10-speed bikes with a skinny seat. That was, I was 11 or 12, enamored with those things. It made me want to give up having to do the motor thing. So I got a 10-speed when I was 11, Schwinn Varsity. I uh, campaigned for that, $66. It was at a motorcycle store. In 1965, I started a little mini bike business, motor mini bikes. Lost a lot of money. Didn't know much about business. Subsidized myself, but made a lot of people happy. And then I started working at the bicycle store, fixing mowers full-time. Got a dollar and a quarter an hour. It was 115 degrees in the back shop sometimes. Oh, no. So that's how I got used to this weather. So I worked there, and in 1971, when the first bike boom came, I had a basically long job, 72 when college closed, came back to that store to work. And I matriculated from the, the mower and chainsaw and tractor part because the people would come in, these old guys in their 20s and 30s, and they would be riding road bikes. And I said, whoa, they can afford cars and motorcycles. They're riding bicycles. Must be something to it. So I became a bike freak back then, okay? We had a big safety pin on our bell-bottom pants. That was a rite of passage. Showed people that you were a cyclist. Big diaper pin on the bell-bottoms. Tie the ponytail back, and we'd ride single-speed, fixed-gear bikes. That was a big, the first trend of that was early 70s. It was a boom. We'd get 300 Schwins in, and we'd stay up sometimes all night. And I ran the assembly line putting the Schwins together. And worked for a couple more shops, making them very wealthy, working for very little. 
And in 1979, a burned out, decrepit, fecal matter all over the place laundromat at the University of Maryland came open. My students, I was teaching a, a free university bike class there. And my students said, there's a bike shop that should go into that laundromat. So one of my students, who is Linda, now my wife of 40 years, and I borrowed a little bit of money, $1,100 for the first month's rent, and made a bike store out of it, doing all the work ourselves, picks, hammers, chisels. And being a laundromat, we had 440 volts and people were getting sparked and water was coming up all over the place. We hung a bed frame from the ceiling. We were basically homeless bed frame from the ceiling. Our little Sheltie was our alarm system and we'd spend nights in the bike shop and no plumbing. We used paper cups and sometimes we'd go to a dorm to shower at the university. We we're right next door to that. And we'd go to local eateries to wash up and do a little bit more. And that was the beginning of College Park Bicycles, August 20th, 1979. That was the beginning. So oh gosh, that was right. the what a fantastic, and you met your wife and you opened this. She was a student in the free university class and needed a little extra attention. And I thought that might be more personal attention than bike attention, but she had just bought a 10 speed bike and didn't know how to make it work. And I knew how to make it work. Wow. I'm just thinking you've been in the industry for so long and your path is just, <laughs> I love the story, but now you have two locations. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what those locations look like as far as size? And- yeah, in 1988, we moved up north. Linda was a, worked at Goddard NASA and was a school teacher. And when our children started coming along in the late 80s, we decided, having taught in that school system, she thought a better education would be up in Howard County. And the riding was much better riding people would come to Howard County for the riding it's a great place to ride a bike still is so we moved up here I commuted to College Park three years later a little $500 a month store came up and she said why don't you open a little store there work a couple days a week and that became Mount Airy Bicycles it got huge the stores are both 3,000 square feet including the workshop we make a lot of use of the ceilings and the parking lots even before COVID we were known as the parking lot shop. On rainy days, we would pull the bikes under the overhang. A lot of people accused me of being what's called studied carelessness. I didn't put this in your notes. Studied carelessness is when you wear the torn jeans or the distressed furniture, or you leave the barber shop and you mess your hair back up just to make a look. And, and they consider the questionable organization here as a ploy to get people to go on a treasure hunt to find things. And they like it. They like walking in here because it's like an old hardware store. It's non-sterile, okay? Things are clean, we're sanitized, but there's just things hanging off of things, hanging off of things. And so that's the atmosphere in the store. There's a couple aisles you can get through and you can usually find what you want. It takes a little bit longer than a conventional bike store, but nobody ever accused this of being a business model. Yeah, Larry, I'm thinking and I'm looking at you now on the video and I'm you're I'm definitely always, most always in our Monday Mingles. So if anyone wants to see Larry's store, he's in video in the Monday Mingles. But it always seems like you are walking through just some amazing, it's like, what's behind you? I just want to go in and look myself. What store are you normally working out of, Larry? I work at Mount Airy because I like it up here in the country uh, much better. It's 30 miles from the other place. We didn't open here because it was a hot market. I opened here to escape to get a place where I could demonstrate bicycles and people that came here would come here for us, not people that happened to be walking by the urban area that has been College Park. They come here as a destination. And because we do a lot of fringe items, special needs, adaptive tandems, recumbents, tricycles, 
something for everybody, it works out much better. There's a an unbusy church next door that shares our parking lot, and they're there very infrequently. So people can ride in a off-street, six-acre parking lot. And the country roads here are terrific for riding bicycles. We've got 12-foot shoulders and 11-foot traffic lanes, thanks to my bribing the uh, paint guy with a pair of Oakleys a few years ago when they put the stripe down. So we've got wide shoulders. And I'm mostly at Mount Airy every day, opening to closing. And then I go to College Park on Thursday nights, and I'm there Sunday noon to 5. We're not open Sunday up here. So I get to transfer items back and forth to get a little bit of flavor, do a little bit of helicopter management, change light bulbs and toilet paper when I go there. You're busy. I'm wondering about the brands, Larry. You know, we talk about all the products you have and how people come to you almost to just see what's happening in the shop. Have your brands changed over the years? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was one of the first Trek dealers, Bianchi dealers. I was the fourth specialized dealer in the world. First 10 Cannondales. I'd like to say that the only two brands represented in the store have been Bianchi and Fuji, which go back to the 1880s, they claim, that predate me and the bicycle business. And I have come to think that I'm more of a concept than a concept store. Back in the day when I went to Schwinn School, they wanted you to be a Schwinn dealer that happened to carry other things. I want to be a dealer that happens to carry what I carry. Uh, we do have major brands. Here. Currently, it's Cannondale, Fuji, Trek, and five or six second and third tier brands, which we like. And when something comes along that has supply, we'll buy it, we'll make friends, we pay our bills on time. We've never, ever, ever taken a penny's worth of loan from anybody. Linda pays all bills with anticipation if possible, everything on time. Because the fees, the fees for being late with your taxes, being late with everything, all these fees just add up and that cuts into the profit. So we make a lot of use of space. Brands can change. 15 years ago, one of the major brands that I used to carry said, you've got to carry this mix of models. I said, that mix of models doesn't work for my people. And we have to do this deductively. Find out what my people want get them what they want, not sell them what we need to buy from you. So it's been nice knowing you for 33 years and uh, we'll move on, no problem. So brands, I like to think of ourselves as the brand, like a travel agent. A travel agent, I really don't care if it's United or American, as long as it's not Frontier Spirit. I go with what the travel agent decides for me. I trust them. I want people to trust us and know that we care. I love that analogy, Larry. And I'm just thinking your shop is so unique. Like, I can't wait to visit. But did the concept of having, you know, I guess at the time when you started, I don't know if you could foresee that you'd have two shops eventually, but what was the mission vision? And was it having just such an array of products and fitting so many people's needs? Or When we first opened College Park, this 79, College Park was a very burned out, drug infested area. And we were an unusual business selling hard goods. We had some mopeds that was popular back then. They only lasted about two weeks because of the smell. My former employer who had underpaid me, he knew that for many years, actually came in, did some of the demo work and supplied me with merchandise for the first year. Just gave me the stuff, tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff. That's how much underpaid I was because I really wanted to keep his business going through hard times. That was a famous shop in DC. So we started with a mix of KHS bicycles. I really wanted one of the big four. Fuji, Pujo, Schwinn, and Raleigh. There was an 11th commandment that if you're not a certain chain store in Washington, you weren't getting Fuji. Schwinn really wanted our firstborn, 
to do it right. And I really wanted the Schwinn name because it was, and I thought the brand was everything. So we sold some Peugeot, we sold some Moda Bacane originals and the KHS bicycles. KHS really helped us out. People said, what is that? And I had another, a lot of these other never heard of brands, but people knew that I'd been in bikes so long that the brand didn't matter. And I said, KHS, they make all these other brands, including maybe Schwinn. We were one of the first giant dealers back in 91 when they had their show. We sold Ross bicycles made in the USA. So I gradually learned to figure that brand didn't matter. People liked us for what we did, not what we carried. And then with your knowledge and being, you know, the mechanically inclined, you could just tell them what was a good bike and they trusted you. I mean, you come across as like just so authentic and people person that you can tell that you're genuine in what you're trying to do and help people just have more fun, right? And we've learned a lot about people too. I, my employees are just astounded. I can tell something about an employee, the way their car pulls into the parking lot the way they steer in and the way they get out of the car and walk and look at the bikes. And this has taken years. This is nothing, nothing you can learn from a course or a seminar or even from me. It's just a sixth sense. And some of these guys are getting it. If you hang around with me long enough, you will get it and just learn. And I've had a very good time being a judge, okay, and assimilating to that person, okay, being that person. Some of our former presidents talked a little different language when they were in one part of their country or city than when they were in another. And our ability to speak different languages to different people. And we do have people, we have staffers, by the way, different part of language. We do sign language, we do Spanish and Russian. So we try to work with people. We like to be inclusive, okay, with this. And we didn't set out to be different. We set out to accommodate the people around us. At the University of Maryland, it was college commuters. 90% of the people that went to Maryland at the time, it's a, it was 45,000 students, were from New York, New Jersey, and D.C. maybe. It was a good school. Back when I was in high school, a D average got into UM. And now you've got to be in your top 15 or 10%. So it's become an upscale school. But the bikes they rode, they would come down with department store bicycles. And we'd have to learn to fix those and fix them quick and not insult the people with those bikes. So we, our goal was to try to get them on working bikes because we did a lot of free service for a certain period of time. We even do follow-up work on our assemblies and our tune-ups. But the mission was to, I'd like to say, keep fun between people's legs. That's something I'm famous for doing. That was the mission, not to, it was no business model. We kept our bills paid, thanks to Linda. She paid everything on time, and that get us a reputation. In fact, she paid the rent five days ahead and still does. We tried to accommodate this. We would do special things. First look fair at the campus. We would go up and exhibit bikes. Uh, We'd loan bikes to people. In fact, in the day, at the King Kong bar, people wanted to go drinking, and they didn't want to drive their cars, so we'd rent them a bike for the drinking night. People didn't want to wait in the drive-in window at the bank for a donut or something. We'd loan them a bike to go to the drive-in window or they could go to the car lane. So different kinds of things that just come to me, not that I've studied or read, are some of the secrets of the longevity. I love that. I'm thinking like we can have this idea in our brain of what we want our business to be, but it's really about meeting. I had no idea. I had no (laughs) idea it would be what it is, how it is, or what it's become. Linda and I frequently argue, do we have one or two stores too many, okay? And we're beginning to think two stores too many, but we're liking it so much. And in spite of a lot of illness and sickness and supply chain problems, we're having the times of our lives during this shortage. We're able to adapt and make things work. 
So you had some great advice for retailers about, you know, taking anticipation when you can and paying your bills. Have you worked with business consultants along the way, Larry? Have you and Linda sat down with anyone specifically to help you? Just the advice of my late father, who was a government economist. They say he was an economist because he bought the economy size. And uh, he used to say, run your inventory down. Don't overbuy. Pay on time. Sell things when you can. Take the opportunity. You can always buy more merchandise. You can't buy the customer back. So if there's an opportunity and you make a decision subjectively on making that sale, even if it's something you may not agree is right, try to make it as right as possible and give them what they want. But his advice was the only advice I've ever taken. There have been people that have come along that wanted to tell me how to do things. But unfortunately, I didn't take any business courses in college. I took personal finance but I thought, what would they possibly know about the bike business? I really got turnover confused with carryover. Mm. And that was a huge mistake. And I still carry over. If you look at these figures, like Mike Jacobowski used to have all these nice figures and Trek World had this about how much you should have and inventory turns. I never paid attention to that. I have way too much. I don't owe anybody any money. So when I go out and look my customer in the eye, there's no great need to push a sale that I don't think is a good sale. I do want to make a living on it. I don't want to discount. I don't want to. To me, discounting is means you are lacking in a sales ability, sales ability. So I don't usually have that motive, but I try to go to the person saying, I want to make this sale. They say dance like no one's watching, sing like no one's listening. And I've added work like you don't have to. And I don't have to work. And that's why this works so well. If you work because you don't have to work, then it makes the work more interesting. I think we need to like take that out and use that quote. I love that, Larry. And I I understand what you're saying. Like you own all the product in your store. You don't need to discount it. You want to get the customer on the right item and you're having a good time and you're hoping to let them have a good time too. I come up with a lot of spur of the moment quotes and I'm famous for this. This is the get by. This is the want to have. How long do you plan to enjoy this gem, this bike? Well, 10 years. I said, well, here's the want to have and here's the get by. What is it? $200 difference? I said, 10 years. And I do a little Columbo and Gump all together. That's my two persona that I mix. I said, 10 years, that's $20 a year. You know, it's about a dollar and a quarter a month to own this better bike. I don't say buy. We don't use the word buy or sell here. We say own, enjoy. And then I break it down. And then I use comparators. I said, hmm, is that your Humvee with the golf clubs in the parking lot? I said, let's see. The difference in these two bikes is a round of golf with a mixed drink and a cigar. I said, or a dinner for four with bad wine. And I use, I come up with comparators just to get people thinking. I get called out on this sometimes, but I find it enjoyable. I like to make people think. I love it. I've never been disappointed with spending a little bit of extra money, but at the heart, at the- We use the word investing. Investing. (laughs) At the time, it's hard, but if you can, you know, put it into something you can understand, I love that because you're helping. I've never been disappointed with investing in the better product. And we like to spin things. When you said hard, my employees might, or a customer will come in, but that's hard to do. I said, terrific, hard. That's several steps above impossible. And I said, I do hard things Monday through Friday. I do the impossible things on the weekends. And if you'd like a miracle, let's make an appointment. So I spin it and I try to cheer people up. My bike has a problem. The employees go like this and they'll say, great, how did you get down to one? Things like that. Just wake them up, shake them up. They're coming gloomy, they'll smile. 
Good, I'm smiling. All right. So Larry, you talked a little bit about this past year and the supply a little bit, and you said that you and Linda are, are doing good through it. So can you talk about you know the shop currently and how you've evolved over the past 15 months? Yeah, you're talking about related to the shortages in the pandemic and the what Jay yeah. doesn't want to call the bike boom. I call it a surge, maybe. Last March, Governor Hogan got on there and says, five o'clock, you're shutting all your retail businesses down in Maryland. I got a call from Patrick, the mayor of College Park, or maybe I called him, and he's on Rails to Trails. He's a big shot with Rails to Trails. They headquartered in D.C., I think. He said, Larry, guess what? I was talking to Homeland. I was talking to the governors. It's on the blower all day. You're an essential business. We're open. So immediately we got motivated. Okay. We've always picked up delivered curbside. We've always done that. We just advertised it more. We just let people know through social or whatever that we will come to your house. We will pick up. We'll have it ready same day and make everything work for you. So other things that we really relished in is when the supply got short, I got motivated to start moving. I came up with a new word, legacy bicycles. And I've got a little baggie that's grown three times on my bulletin board at home to put one of my little four-digit tags in. And I have one of these on every bike. I'm up to 4,875 now. And each one of the bikes has a tag. So I've got this and I have a huge bag. Just I'm going to make a collage out of it one day. The used bike started moving. And I told people, look, when peacetime comes, should peacetime come, you can upgrade to one of those modern bikes about which you asked. Very few of these people are coming back. They're loving their legacy bike. The parking lot for a while looked like it was 1979 all over again. Just a lineup of beautiful, classic Raleigh's, Schwinn's, Ross, just classic bikes. People got on them. We put comfortable seats, high handlebars. They were loving the bikes. And I was in my element. I kept going to the warehouse every day, bringing back a few more bikes. People were just happy to have something domestically produced that was designed as Grant Peterson called, busage, last a lifetime. So that got us through. We sanitized things here. The supply got short. I'd rob Peter to pay Paul. If a bike had a derailleur on it, that wasn't selling. Even a new bike, I would take it off and keep that thing rolling. Just get the butts on the bikes. Yeah, keep it rolling. How about your staff? We've been talking a lot about, you know, staff are hard to find, staff are burnt out. How yeah, how many employees do you have and how do you keep them happy? And They really like my craziness here or what they like to call the study carelessness, but it's not studied. It just comes. We've got three full timers here at Mount Airy, including me. I work the shop every day. I don't take a day off. Tomorrow at noon, I'll be flying to the Dolomites for three weeks and I'll enjoy that. We're doing some mountain biking, meeting our first grandchild and our three children and, and Linda and I get together every year or two. So this is our second year thing to do that. So I feel good about doing this, knowing that I put in the sweat during the week. I don't need a day off to groom the dog or get a haircut. Okay. I don't, if I want it, I can leave. Last Friday, my daughter called and said, come up to New Hampshire. I'm getting a house inspection. 30 hours. I was on a plane, came back the next day, worked the next day. So I can just do that. It's not important that I be here every day and I can operate it by remote control with the telephone now. So three full-time, three part-time at each store plus or minus, they like the fact that they don't get stuck in a routine. Back in the 70s, when 300 Schwins came on a semi, that was not fun. That was just boring. That was like being, pardon me, but a checkout person in a grocery store. They can be friendly because they talk to people all day. But to put these kids in the back room and just say, assemble these bikes, people are coming in to buy their varsities, boring bikes. 
okay, strong but boring, and get them together. They like the fact that every day we don't know who or what is going to walk in the door. There'll be a, a 1950s used bike that comes in, and the young guys love to clean those up. They like to make them sparkle. They enjoy this, okay? We got a kid out there. It's 93 out there now. He's a Eagle Scout high school guy. No problem. We only turn the air on here when it's 90 and above. And that's when I wear shorts. We get used to it because people have to go outside eventually into the real world anyway. Yep. So if you get them hovering, hunkering in climate control, then they're not going to want to go outside and enjoy the bikes. And what the product we sell is an outdoor product. And the other guys like the fact that we get challenges, right? One guy's been working, it's getting a little bit too much, seven hours diagnosing a e-trike. And it's frustrating, all because the customer didn't tell him that when she folded it, she cut a wire underneath, okay? Oh, that no. wasn't reported. So things do get frustrating here, but they like these challenges and they don't like routine. And they like the fact that we are different. They brim in the fact that we're different. And most importantly, that my 18-year-old kid out there can walk up to a 70-something senior citizen, put him on the trike, and just, he's got the grandson image. And the people love these people. And they have pride in doing that. Even this young kid, been with us a year and a half, can sell a trike to a senior. That's, to me, the kind of job I would have liked to have back then. Yeah. Not go in the back room and put a spark plug in the chainsaw. That <laughs> was not fun. Yeah, you're making an impact on someone's life, a true difference. It's a fun job, right? They love it. <laughs> they like the variety of things and the variety of skills and jobs they do. One moment, the kid will be sorting inner tubes. He'll patch some. We patch tubes here. And another moment, he'll be selling a $7,000 trike to somebody. Variety. Change. Like no repetitive stress disorder. Larry, I didn't tell you that I was going to ask you this question, but off the cusp here, because we're just chatting, I'm thinking about it. How are you training your employees? I've heard from a lot of retailers recently that are looking for advice for training employees. Oh, it's always on the job. I have a statement I put in your questionnaire, hire for the attitude and train for the skill. A know-it-all comes in that knows everything. That's nice, but I've gotten these people out of these training schools and you really have to unlearn them in many aspects. They watch me. There's nothing in the store that anyone can do better than I can do except operate the computer terminal. I pretend like I'm doing something else. I said, I'll go work on the guy's bike. You write it up. And I'm very accurate when I do it, but it takes me twice as long to go through all those fields. And these younger people grew up with fields and sorting and all that. So I let them do that. And it's kind of like an illiterate person pretending that they know how to do it, but they don't want to do it and they want to do something else. So on the job and each as they go along, the first thing I'll do is I will try to delegate. And I do the menial things too. I will, I'm known to reach in a toilet with a Scotch-Brite and clean it out, no glove. Okay, I have no problem doing that, okay? So I'll clean the toilets. Hopefully, I'll let them use a glove and a stick brush, but I will do this if I have to. I'll change the light bulbs. I do a lot of things myself. We'll get into that when we do the cost cutting. But I, on the job, and each time, I'll give him something more menial. Sort these tubes, Brandon. A known task that he doesn't have to come and ask questions. And I'll gradually work them into more and more responsibility. And I show him how to do it. Then I ask for a demonstration, like showing your customer how to use the quick release or shift the derailleur. Demonstrate, follow up, ask for a demonstration that they can do it, and then refer them to YouTube if they need a lot of information that you can't provide at the time. So, so on the job training, yeah. definitely. I, I don't send them to schools. We can sometimes 
do some tutorials like Trek University. And the guys like that. They get little spits for that. That's fantastic advice. I'm just thinking, okay, you've been in the business for so long. So I gave you like a little prep that I thought it'd be fun to do some of Larry's best tips for our retailers listening. And so if okay with you, I'm just going to jump into these questions and let you give some sage advice to some people. And I want you to prompt me on some of those since if I bring that screen up, I'm going to lose you. Okay. So first question, for a retailer thinking about getting into the bike business, do you have any advice? I would make sure that they have a store experience, people experience. They got to be a people person, okay? Bedside manner, people person. And work for somebody else for six months to a year. Work for somebody else in the similar business, okay? There are people that they call them headhunters. They look for people in business. If I were going to do it, sometimes when I look for people. I think we're off a little bit here, but when I look for people and I'm at a fast food place, there's ducks and there's eagles. If I see an eagle, that's the person that gets more people done. I'm in two lines. One's got the checkout person that's an eagle and one has got the duck line. Okay. That eagle person is the type of person you want to hire. Now, what was the question again? For someone thinking about the bike. Work for somebody else. If you can, whether it's part-time, full-time, apprentice. At a, I've got volunteers that come in here. We have a lot of volunteers. A friend of mine from, uh, I do wrench work overseas with a tandem group, Santana Tandems. I've been doing that for 30 years. And a lot of people watch me work in the field. And a couple of them have flown in. One guy came all the way from Calgary. He says, this is amazing. I need to learn more. Flew in from Calgary, spent a week here, brought his trombone. We played in the, in the band. And he got more out of that week here than the last 10 years he's had working on bikes. So I would say volunteer somewhere. Maybe it's one of these local co-op things where people get donated bikes and fix them up for the needy. Those are great places to, to get skills. Come into this store. I'll give you sweat equity. I'll give you a discount on parts. And I take volunteers. When I can get away with it, young kids down to 10 or 12 sometimes can do a great job. Sometimes the parents throw up a flag, but we have a lot of homeschool in this area. And I tell people that we have a very good command of people skills, interpersonal relationships, math, and a good command of the language. And their kid will learn a lot hanging out here a couple hours a week as a work study. So if you get into business and surround yourself with winners, this is these motivator people say, surround yourself with winners, can-do people, resourceful people, not just people that go through the motions. Leave the ducks back in the pond. Get those eagles around you, okay? And Larry, you also mentioned to make sure your goal is not primarily motivated by money and profit as another thing to consider when you're getting into the bike industry. Yeah, I came up with the P thing. I know they have these P20 groups. And I got two things from Zig Ziglar back in the day. He used to do speeches at bike events or something. He says, if you help enough other people get what they want, you'll get everything you want in life. And if you go there with that premise, and then I've come up with this P, but he used to say goals had to be personal, positive, and present. You can't make a goal for the future or the past. You can't make a goal for somebody else, okay? Now, you can't make a negative goal. I'm going to stop eating ice cream. That's a negative goal. You want to say, I will eat healthy food. Then I've come up with some more P's that we like to put passion and pride over profit. And when you do that, the profit just comes in buckets. Okay, we make money here. We don't owe any money. We make money and we have a good time doing it and we share it. We give a lot to charity. A lot of people offer a tip, okay? Sometime if they can sneak it in, the employee gets it. The tip thing, sometimes they'll keep tip. It can be ulterior, tipping an employee for 
moonlight or free work. And that's one of the things that raises a flag with a tip. They'll pay somebody if they're very happy that they did something for free. And when people try to tip me, I tell them to take that money because I do a lot of just in the parking lot jobs. If something is just pumping air up and riding the bike, 90% of the tune-ups that come in here for a $90 tune-up, they need air in their tires. They need and a blessing. So I give them the blessing and the air in their tires and they throw a 10 or $20 bill. And I say, look, somebody out there needs that money more than you or me. Go feel good about it and give it to, even if it's that person on the street corner, give that to somebody that needs it more than you. And they appreciate that because I certainly don't need the 10 or 20 right now. Now, donuts or beer comes in. Well, that's a different story. (laughs) Donuts are good. Bicycle Retail Radio is supported by our NBDA members. All our member benefits can be found at NBDA.com. Join the NBDA today. No, I love this. And, you know, Larry, I'm thinking not only for someone getting bite into the bicycle industry, but, you know, we've been doing all these member networking events. And recently we did a Monday mingle with Tim from Rock and Road presented on paying your employees by commission. And we actually had a bike shop owner fly up and visit his shop and learn from another retailer. And so I'm thinking like, we have to get out of this mindset that it's all about us. And we have to just be more helpful to everyone. And even if you're in the bicycle industry, go visit another bike shop and spend time with that owner, right? And learn from them, right? And bite your tongue if they don't do it your way. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Remember, most of us are the world's foremost authorities of our own opinions. (laughs) This is true. That's a great idea. I visited, so I make a point to visit places and the ones I really like are the study carelessness. There's probably 10 that I know of in the country that are just brimming with confusion. And that makes me feel better about my place. One store I visited, Linda was with me. It was in the East. And she says, you know, he could double his business if he did one thing, ran a snow shovel down the aisle because you literally had to walk over things to get in the aisle. So there's a certain degree of studied carelessness that is out of bounds. That place was one of them. But we can learn a lot from the others. I think that's a great point. And another piece of advice, we may get into this later, was by all means, network with your other retailers. And I've been in the NBDA for a long time. I, of course, I recommend it. But up until, I don't know, when you and Rachel and this new administration came in, I've been very cynical. I've been a downcast with it. I said, what are they doing for me? I'll pay my fees every year for the 15 or 20 people that are on the chat thing. But these mingle. And I don't do tweeting or TikToking or any of that. I'll go on Facebook if it's an emergency, okay? And I do, doesn't mean I don't do email. I had a trio with me at the leadership conference back in the 80s, okay? And I was doing email and they thought I was taking notes, okay? So I, I'm way into the connection thing. But when you people took over the NBDA and did these mingles and these podcast radio things, it's a, it's a whole new world. And for anybody to get into it and not pay that up front, they're missing a big portion of what they could be. And of course, when they're in, they help me. When I teach a bike class, I've been doing that 45 years. I learn things in these bike classes. I learn things from customers every day. Thanks. Yeah. It's been so much fun to learn from other retailers. And we just, we throw out questions and we just have conversations and I always come away with something and a new idea. So I'm glad. Especially (laughs) you need to learn from other people's mistakes because you'd never, ever have time to make them all yourself. Yeah. It's been enlightening for sure. All right. I got another question for you, Larry. For a retailer working with brands, 
thinking about purchasing and managing inventory. I mean, right now, so many people are thinking about what am I doing for next year? Do you have any advice for retailers? I liked it because of space limitations. That's why main reason I do all my repairs in one day, in and out, sometimes while you wait, if you can wait an hour or two, is space. I make so much use of space. And I have seven buildings down the road full of old bikes and boneyards and things that I don't know what my heirs are going to do with. But I don't like to overbuy and overstock. Years ago, bikes came by motor freight and you could only buy those Schwinns a hundred or so at a time. Then UPS started taking bicycles. It was great. You could order a bike and bring the bike. District Cycle Supply was seven miles from our College Park store. Yet they wanted me to stock 30 to 40 kabukis at a time. I said, why? You're right here. I can drive up and get the bike in 15 minutes. So that ended that. I don't like to overbuy, of course, and I'm very poor at crystal ball and the future, which is why I don't like pre-season ordering. I'd rather pay a little more. Okay. I don't like exorbitant freight charges. So when I order my hand-to-mouth bike, sometimes it's 10, 15, 20 at a time. And this store will sell 700 to 900 bikes in a good year, maybe a 1,000 in a great year. I like to get them in time. I don't like them sitting around. And because we have so many great pre-loved bikes, I don't really want to stock what's called a broad inventory, okay? So, and of course, only buy what you think you can move in a certain amount of time and pay for it. I used to hoard and collect bikes thinking, well, if I don't sell that bike this year, it's going to go up in value. And I was used to working in an inflationary time in the 70s, 80s, 90s, inflationary, which means every year the new bike would be up. And the bike I had from the previous year, the price would rise with the tide, which is what's going on now. A $70 1966 Raleigh is going for $250 to $300 now. That doesn't mean I made all that money. Because if that $70 back then were tied up in a better instrument, something that turned over. And that goes back to the saying that, the, and much by my father, the longer you keep something, the more it costs. I'm finally getting out of this. It seems like I'm earning more, triple and quadrupling the original price of the bike, but I'm not because I've had the money tied up all the time, which could have been in other things. Okay. So I say don't overbuy. I'm not a preseason person uh, and I don't have a crystal ball buy what you think you can sell, and don't just get what you like. I've been guilty of getting things I like, and there's certain things I don't like, and I don't like selling air canisters. I just an ethical thing for me. I don't like CO2, okay? Not because little thing's going to kill the planet. I just don't think you need to buy air, okay? I don't buy water. I don't buy air. Water comes out of the ground. It's fresh. Air is free. I don't want to pay for it. I don't like these little chain cleaning machines. I have ways of doing my chain that I'd have to show you in person. So there are certain things I just won't carry. And I don't mind. I tell these guys, I don't need the money bad enough to sell something I don't like. Okay. You can buy that stuff anywhere. That's what my advice, not to overstock, not to just do what you like and not just to get something because it's different and new and and don't fall for the hype and the pitch of so many new things. Your turn. I love that advice. All right. Okay. Okay. Service shop and managing repairs. I'll never forget one time we were on a Monday mingle and you were mingling as you were taking a bike in and we were talking about, I guess, like writing up like repairs and you were like, look at, I noticed this right here, like on the fly. So any advice for a retailer about the service shop and managing repairs? Yeah. 
Um, take a look at the whole picture for a minute or two when the bike comes in. Figure out what the bike's worth. I don't like to do a $90 repair on a $60 bicycle, and I will tell people this in my Columbo uh, uh, Gump format. I don't tell them it's a cheap bike or a bad bike. I don't do that. I said, this bike, I tell them what it is. I said, this is a $60 bike when it's not on sale, and you're better off saving what you'd put into this repair and investing. And I told that to a man. The other day on a Roadmaster 24-inch purple girls bike, what a shock, just yesterday. I emailed and I said, should we donate this bike? I said, it's a $70 bicycle. It's going to cost this to fix it. And that's with hard work and very favorable labor rates. He said, oh, I want it for my girlfriend. He was 50-something. Fix it. Came in to pick it up yesterday. He put two $20 bills on the table. It came to $104. It needed a lot of parts. And I vetted him two or three times to not do it, okay? And I looked at the whole picture. I made that bike better than it's ever been and working at high investment of time and a low cost. He put $40 on it. He was deaf, okay? So I signed to him a little bit. And he put the $40 on the table and started taking the bike. And then Paul knows a little bit of sign language. He said, here's the ticket. And the guy, not too much money. I said, what part of... This is what it's going to be that might you have missed, okay? And he was a happy-go-lucky guy. It wasn't bad. He left, paid for the bike, and smiled on his way out. So look at the whole picture. See what you have there first. Make sure you're not getting into anything that's going to open cans and that you have to keep calling that customer with what the insurance company calls a supplement, okay? Mm-hmm. You want to try to catch things. I can smell a bent frame from far away, and I'm not afraid to go out and tell people that their frame is bent. And- we have on that, I use a computer now, but on the, we still have some of the old Sutherland's tickets. And on the back, it has the thing called an unsafe bike report. And I use that a lot. It's official. I said, the frame is bent. It could cause injury or death. Uh, do you want us to fix it anyway? And I have them sign it. The main reason I use that unsafe bike report is to try to sell them a bike so that they see in writing that this bike is unfit and they have signed an acknowledgement. And half the time, it will lead to a bike sale. But the service department, We are in what's called triage mode right now. This is how I can do so many. Sometimes you have to play uh, God in these cases, but you have to be the judge of whether that bike is worth doing. And when I have an overwhelming amount of bikes, I do the easiest ones first. That gets more customers on the road faster, clears bikes out of the way, opens up the sea. And some things that are quick, you delegate to the kid out there. Okay, air in the tires, tighten up their pedals, take it for a ride. And three bikes today came in. They said, this bike needs a lot of work. We're going to the beach. I said, kind of short notice. However, I don't use but I use however. I take it for a ride. They said, that's one of the, I said, I'm very tolerant to thin seats, but this is riding on a metal pan. I put a a $60 seat on for her on her 1977 three-speed. I said, look, you can't get new bikes anyway. I said, if I sold this bike used in my store, it's $200. She felt good about her bike. Didn't have to put a tune-up on it. I put the saddle on, I rode the bike around the parking lot, showed her how to take care of the squeaky brakes, and that's gone. That was seven minutes. Okay, $60 sale. A happy customer. I even charged her a little bit of labor for cutting the seat post down. Something more complicated, you have to decide whether you want to turn that around now or take it in. I usually take it in, spend an hour on it, have them come back in two hours. So the perceived value, and if something takes seven minutes and it's just me hitting it with a hammer, I still take an hour. I don't want them sitting around watching over me. I will invite them back. I have an open store. You can see what I do if you really want. But by the time 
time it takes to explain everything, some of our employees just go to the computer, write up every cable, every ferrule, every uh, wire and little bit and thing. And that just takes time. In the three or four minutes you watch me on that bike, I'll have the bike done. Okay. I'll put lube in the cables. I'll sand down rust. I'll turn the bike over, make them happy. I don't, if it's what I call bling or elective surgery, okay, I want to motorize my bicycle. Oh. I, blah, blah. I said, your bike is functioning. That's better than most people out there. Let's save the bling and let's save the elective work for the fall when my rates are lower and I'm less grouchy and I can do a better job on your bike. So be the expert, get them rolling. Don't take in every bike if you don't need to, <laughs> you know, make them happy. <laughs> if it's a BSO, bicycle shaped object, and it looks like it's not worth it, you have to be discretionary and do it friendly. Do it in a friendly way. Bicycle shaped object. I like that BSO. <laughs> All right, Larry, I got another one for you. This one's really important as we're looking at, you know, some shops have less bikes to sell right now. Advice for controlling fixed expenses. So how can we control those fixed expenses as retailers? I do as much as I can myself. We change our own light bulbs. We clean our own floor. We clean our windows. We recycle a lot. Okay. We have a uh, steel collector guy. He makes his money off our aluminum and we separate the steel and the aluminum. He comes by every month. I usually give him 20 bucks for gas. He's kind of a charity case. He's the good Samaritan scrapper. And he comes by. So he gets more in a pickup than I can get in the bike shop sometimes. And he takes all my metal. So there's things I don't want to put in landfill. Every morsel of cardboard. In fact, Linda takes the white paper to a church recycling thing, all white paper. Brown paper and cardboard go in my big thing outside. I flatten the boxes. I save number of pickups. They say if it goes into trash, it's no good from Larry. It's no good to anybody for anything. And then we have artists that come and get parts. So I save on trash expenses. The landlord takes care of what little lawn we have here. We change our own light bulbs, clean our own floors, put our own fixtures in. Other costs, we had a rag service at College Park, okay? So I told them how to get five wipes out of one rag, the middle and the four corners. So you always have a fresh corner in case you have to wipe something. And they'll go and they'll take a nice fresh rag and reach into, that's 25 cents every time you take a rag. They'll reach into the bottom bracket with a nice fresh rag to clean all that grease. And I said, just go into that can, get that Dunkin' Donuts bag that I would have kept anyway, and wipe out the bottom bracket. I said, go into that can and tear a corner off of a box. That's your notepad and tweak it in the spokes. You don't need a three-part form for everything. So certain things that just seem obvious, mm -hmm. when you spend money on things, it all adds up. And cutting costs paying the bills on time, paying the taxes on time. Avoid being a franchise owner, in my opinion. A good store, we're about 11 to 12%, which is unprecedented. Profit, that's what I get as a corporation, me and Linda, before we pay our personal taxes. A good store, though, will make seven to nine. I know some of these figures. A franchisee sometimes wants two to 6% to use their bags and their name and things like that. You don't need that. B, I like to say the more you try to be like somebody else, the less you're going to be like yourself, okay? I did try to join the, well, no, I was drafted and I had medical things, so they turned me down. That is being a company person and serving a good cause. But being a pawn in the franchise thing, I don't know. That's just my thing. For some people, yes. But for me, absolutely not. Otherwise, I'd had that job that I was turned down for as the bike coordinator in D.C. being another government worker. So costs, you got to keep them down. 
And we do a lot of twofers. I don't waste any time. Just like we don't waste money. We don't waste any time. If it's after 10 o'clock in the morning, we're opening and you're on your way outside, you better have a bike in your hand. Maybe two. At five o'clock, we close at six. If you're coming in that door, have a bike with you. That's called a twofer. Mm -hmm. You're going someplace, have something with you. Network at home. What's on the bottom stairs, it needs to go up. What's on the top stair needs to come down. Don't waste a trip. You're going up anyway. Take that with you. Take what's on the top down. And we do a lot of twofers. Sometimes I'll have to transfer something to my other store in College Park. I'm not going to UPS it. I'll ask customers. Anybody going near College Park? How about a donut and a soda? Take this down, put it in your car. So people work for us and we do a lot of this networking, okay? If there's somebody in town with a, a truck and a chips in the back, I say, I need some trees. Do a little bit of a job for me. I'll take care of your bike with a tune-up. Try to barter for things, okay? And that's how we do it. We just, it's loose. It has to be loose. It can't be rigid, okay? I like that. These are great tips. Thank you, Larry. This is really great stuff. Okay, I'm going to move on. There's a, I have this question, and I think it came up in a mingle, and I want to address it right now. So you're the owner, the manager of a bicycle store, and you're at the store, and you're watching one of your employees talking to a customer or trying to work with a customer to figure something out, and you're noticing that your staff member is unable to handle the customer or the situation. They're going the wrong direction. How can you as the shop owner or employee or manager help that employee in that situation? Well, first, if they, if they use the word expensive, this one's the more expensive one over here. <laughs> I do a little cough and they, you know, they giggle. And sometimes I hear everything that's going on in here. And sometimes I've been known to chime in a little too much. I try not to undermine the person. And if a customer is out there doing what we call having coffee with the customer, coffee with a customer. I'm just BSing and we're talking about other things, concerts, music. Okay, That's okay. That's the warm part. And I, I do that. If somebody drives up with a dog, we like dogs here and we'll talk dogs or something, but you got to work them towards why they're here and why you're here. So I'll do the cough or something. And sometimes if the coffee break is taking a little too long, we'll call them on the phone. <laughs> Brandon, you got a phone call. We get him in the back of the store. Oh, while he's on the phone. Hey, did you notice this over here? I didn't say can't do that, won't. We try to turn it into positive. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of the can't and won't, I'll say, wow, have you seen? Have you? Did you know? Oh, you know, we just got our kickstands in. If I see a bike without a kickstand, and I knew the, the employee forgot to mention the kickstand. I said, oh, we just got our kickstands in. So it doesn't seem like a sale. Perhaps you were here before and you didn't get the kickstand. I said, eh, most people can use it. It might force you to put your bike somewhere where it doesn't belong. But for the most part, it is a way to support cycling. I'll throw a little bit of that in there. So I'll do a turnover sometime and then I'll casually. And when I go out on the floor, I've got a dust rag in my hand. Okay. I, I got this from Harry Friedman years ago. That way. And there's a thing called a U-turn. I've learned, picked up some of this. I think that was a Joe Marcu thing. But anyway, I have a dust rag and I'll go out there and I'll dust bike or air them up or move it and casually talk to them. Okay. Oh, hey, cool. Like road bikes, huh? Or whatever the opening line is. That way the customer doesn't say, whoa, I got this guy all the way out of the back and I feel really guilty because I'm just looking. Yeah. But this way I'm dusting a bike so he doesn't feel, he's out here dusting bikes anyway. Good. I'm not wasting his time. And we don't really approach customers because we're always busy. And we'll say, hey, any questions, give a shout. We're here to help. 
And when they're silent for a while, because this place, it awes people and they're overwhelmed and I can understand that. I'll say, hey, we're suspicious of those that don't ask questions because they might be spies from (laughs) another store. Okay. So if you need, I said, I forgot more than some people know. And we try to work comedy into this thing because everybody needs humor. Okay. So when they do that, I'll do this turnover. Okay. And then you never, and I've been guilty of this. Sometimes I've contradicted something. They said, well, I, this has got a front motor and I like a hub motor, things like that. Sometimes I've contradicted. So you have to be careful not to paint yourself into that corner or to especially undermine that person or reprimand them in front of people. I've done that over the years. I've done it discreetly, but not discreetly enough. So you learn by that. And sometimes, very rarely will the, and this is, I appreciate this, employee react back to me. They'll get me in the back and tell me that I didn't do it right. And I will tell them if they didn't do it right, but not enough. I've not been known for overly amounts of stroking and love, but my love is a little tougher, but it's good love. Okay. It's the quality love I give these people because I care about them. And that's, I think you'll get to that later about caring for your customers, caring about them. There are eight reasons why people buy they, what they do and from whom they buy it. Merchandising. This place is careless. Okay. But you can find things. Product knowledge. Okay. How you close the sale. Do you have a Lego place for the kids? Are the bathrooms clean? Customer service. What's number one? I told you in my thing. They're knowing that you care about them. That's above customer service because my customer service has been known. Some people just don't get it. Okay. They're expected to be treated like maybe Disney. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can't fake it. Okay. I get very real with people, but no, I leave them knowing that we care. I want to leave them knowing that we care about them. That's number one. And there are several motivation types that will agree. Covey and uh, Waitley and all these people that they need to know that you care. That's great advice. And it's true. I mean, people want to feel good about where they're buying something. And when you're dealing with a real person, you can tell that they care about you. I guess then my next question would be, how are you engaging with your community? What are you doing outside the shop? We talked a little bit about donations. We talked a little bit about teaching customers how to service the bikes. What things are you doing in your community? Well, of course, the average business, not just a bike business, must get approached hundreds of times a month for some kind of a handout, okay? We do what's called sweat equity and in-kind, okay? I just don't pay money. It's like teach a man to fish or give him a fish, okay? We want to teach people how to fish. It got a very interesting one. One of my volunteers, he now works here, just retired from NPR, 60-something guy, loves the store. He was approached by the Maryland Correctional Facilities to donate bicycles for women inmates that are becoming paroled. Give them a bike so when they get paroled, they can go go to their job. I said, great idea. However, if you want me to donate bikes, I need to take it to another level. I want to teach these people how to fix bikes and understand bikes and work on them. And the department did a lot of checking and found a way to train us both for a day to get behind the walls, what they call in-house, bring tools. There's a lot of protocol and it got stalled from COVID. We're going to go back this year. Teach them how to fix bikes and give them the bike. Let them fix the bike, have the bike when they get out. And we do this with other charitable organizations too. I do a lot of service work 
at local events. When I'm approached for a charity or money, it has to involve bicycles because there's so many out there. It has to involve either a bike event or giving a bike as a prize, not just a money handout. I, I don't do that. I got to draw it somewhere. Right. So we do a lot of work with special needs. We do free wheelchair work for people. Okay, like put a tire or tube in. If you got a wheelchair, we'll do that. The community comes here and they, they know that we do a lot of adaptive things. So we do that for wheelchairs, major work we charge for. And then the local schools, I've done talks at some of the schools. Anecdote, biggest mistake I ever made. I had 150 first through third graders on the floor at the New Market Elementary School 20 years ago. Anybody <laughs> here not learned to ride a bike yet? Oh, a few hands went up. A few hands went up. First grade, what's that, age six and up? should ride a bike by then. A few hands went up. So most of those hands that went up had mothers at home who called me that day that I embarrassed their child oh, in no. front of the school. Oh, no. Oh, so I said, tell you what I'm going to do. Bring them in. I'm going to give them a lesson, whether there's a bad dad involved. I don't care. Bring them in. I'm going to teach them how to ride a bike. And all happily ever after. You go buy the Jimmy Cone. I'll teach them how to ride a bike. Best intentions had no idea. <laughs> so anything you're doing to keep up with the changing inventory and consumer needs right now? I'm digging deeper and deeper and deeper into my used bike. Things I thought I'd never sell. I'm digging out and finding homes for I'm making a nice sign. Hey, 100% original survivor. It's a good word, survivor. Legacy edition Ross bicycle made in USA. All the good features and I'm digging those. I'm stopping by yard sales and picking up bikes, fixing them up. When I go to Florida a couple times a year, I'll FedEx a few bikes home from the uh, senior communities and get them up here and robbing Peter to pay Paul, encouraging people to drive around looking at the ends of driveways for bikes for sale, going on Marketplace and all that, buying bikes and bringing them to me, mail ordering a bike, bringing it to me. I'm getting over $100 for assemblies now, and I give a free follow-up with that. People are loving it. Wow, I can identify with this shop. They didn't scold me for ordering this bike, okay? Mm -hmm. When it's wrong, I don't like to say I told you so, but I told you so. And we'll take, sometimes we'll take those in trade for something from us. And they like this. They like that this shop did not knee-jerk and kick them out of here because they jumped the line and bought a bike somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. When a trade comes in, I said, you buy it here? No. I said, well, then I'll give you more for it because we're trying to build customers. And I just surprise them. You got to kill them with kindness, surprise them, keep it humorous. Okay. Head up, not head down. And we try to get people to, to follow this creed. So that's how we're keeping up. We're adapting to some of these shortages. Okay. And I don't want to leave any customers hanging because the industry doesn't have their part. I want to keep their butts on that seat. Larry, no matter what it takes, even if it's a part off one of my bikes, even if I have to loan them my bike. I loaned a guy a touring bike to take a trip to Boston. He comes back and says, what a great trip. Can't get bikes now. He says, take my bike. Comes back and throws two C-notes in my face. And I said, oh, I can't take it. He says, I had the time of my life. Great bike. Bike came back better than I said, put new brake shoes on it. Something he'll remember forever. Yeah. People remember what they're given. They don't always remember the discount, but they remember what they're given. You give somebody something. Rivendell gave me a bike 15 years ago for writing an article on the NBDA forum. Grant sent me a bicycle for coming out against the industry. And when we get down to the thing, I'll tell you some of the things I'm against. 
All right. Any advice that you, other advice that I haven't asked you about that you want to pass on to retailers from your experience over so many years? Every day is a new opportunity. Go into that store expecting something different to happen. Okay. Go through your day. And if it looks like you're having a tough day as you drive or ride your bike to the store, it looks like you're going to have a tough day challenging day. Pretend you got everything done that day and that you're actually driving home. Pretend you're on your way home and you accomplished most of those things on your list and it'll make that day go better and enjoy the job every day. And the fact that if you didn't get your ride in, okay, then you rode vicariously through those people you put on the road. Okay. That's really good advice. All right. Best cycling advice you've ever been given. I've been given or have given out? That you ever have been given. Oh, okay. Best cycling advice. Eat before you're hungry. (laughs) I think I came up with that one. Drink before you're thirsty and get into the low gear before you get up the hill. And if you're going to pass somebody in the sprint, back up a couple lengths. This is a great one. I used to just pull out and head for the sprint with 100 yards to go. I'd suck that wheel as long as I could. But then Mike Walden people will know who that is at a camp in Florida says back up two bike lengths when you're two or 300 meters away, then accelerate in behind them and then gradually go around. Don't just pull out and go. Okay. And the best advice I've given is pedal with ease and shift with authority. That's going to be on my epitaph. That means people that try to shift their bike under load are, uh, sometimes become pedestrians, okay? And I have to give that bike to people with $15,000 tandems and people with $90 huffies. Shift with authority, pedal with ease, not the opposite. I like that. How's that advice? That's good, that's good. Sprint, I don't accelerate in behind people anymore. I'm not But I give that advice to customers. That's good advice. I have a couple more questions, right? The industry, is there anything you would like to see in our industry that isn't here? Anything, any changes? simplify simplify i like throwback i like the past okay i don't like walking over to change the tv channel i've gotten lazy i'd like to see fewer models less overlap less forced innovation okay fewer we don't need 700 different sku's from some of these big players they've gotten away from huge catalogs i like that i like the online thing my shelves are devoid of paper it's great but i'd like to see less hype less people that come out with something laughing all the way to the bank in marketing i never took marketing class but i've heard through these motivation people that in order to sell something you need you got to sell fun and you have to come up with something different so they think they need it when something they have is already good. You got to be different. High top shoes versus low top shoes, mini skirt, maxi skirt. Keep changing it just for the change of sake. And I'm thankful I'm not in the fashion industry. It's like, and <laughs> definitely too. thankful I'm not in the food industry because I'd want to carry over food and I would sell spoiled food that's 20 years old, just like my bikes. So I would say less of this hype and forced innovation and just realistic and I've identified certain persona in customers, but that's not what the industry is doing. That's what customers are doing. That's the extreme prepper, the people that carry too much on their bike, the people that must be the fastest, the best, the nicest, blingiest. People want to be the best at something. Okay, fine. And then the the perfectionist. I'd like to see less perfectionism, okay? There used to be this thing where people would get so close to the bike looking for a fingerprint or a smudge, we'd call them sniffers. 
Okay. We thought they were smelling the bike. So that I'd like to see less of the cosmetic industry. I think it was $47 billion was spent, not invested in this country last year on being cool. Okay. I have cool bikes, but they're humble, cool bikes. They're not just who can spend the most money and get the most bling on their bike. I don't know. I just a little more real, but I'm still glad they're investing that money here rather than something illicit. So I'd like to see less forced innovation, less overlap in models. We don't need a model every $30. I'd also like to see more of the networking and the sharing like you have encouraged us to do and for which you've provided these forums to do. I'd like to see more of that. I thought I'd never share any of this until I was retired. But the more you help others get what they want, boom, the more you get what you want. Yeah, Larry, I've I'm been just... working on a book since 1999, and there's a section on our website called Missives from Larry that the that. web guy used to collect, and he'd put them up as missives. And it, some things are a little off the wall, but that plus I, a lot of tech tips, I, a writer from DuPont has been collecting this. And I said, we're not coming out with the book till I close down both stories. He said, why is that? I says, it would make me too busy, and I don't want to be too busy. I mean, people have said they love hearing what you add to the Monday Mingles and people definitely want to learn more. So thank you for so much time. You know, we're working on this Bicycle Retailer of Excellence Award and providing, we did a webinar about uh, retail excellence. If you could guide us in your mind, what Bicycle Retail Excellence looks like, what would you say? I'd say, and I don't like to use all this buzz. I know. Team members. What do you call it? Experience. Okay. Yeah, it's an experience. Create the experience. There's so much buzz and I'm anti-buzz. Okay. And you're from a, the next generation or two past me, but what yada, yada, uh, yada is to you is blah, blah, blah to us. And excellence means showing them you care, being able to get more people on bicycles, having a good time doing it and dissuading people from living a false sense of why they're getting their bike. Sometimes people just, somebody will walk in and say, I like that bike. I want that. But how much is that bike? It doesn't fit them. It's a totally wrong bike for them. What they like is the bling or the emotional appeal. I will admit 90% of the items sold in this country, other countries, bike shops are based on emotional appeal. And the industry knows that emotional appeal is something that's very strong. Emotion. I mean, emotion can cause war. Emotion can cause death. But they're buying bikes based on emotion. And the reason I have so many of these trade-in bicycles and bikes I bought outright is because somebody was talked into something that wasn't for them. They thought it was going to change their life. So an excellence means providing the right bike and the right size to the right person, making sure it fits what they want or your services. Make sure your services fit what they want. Just You can't go out with dollar signs in your eyes saying, wow, I'm seeing a $90 tune-up there. I'm seeing new grips, new cables. The cables are fine on that bike. The brake shoes are fine. File them down a little bit. Don't just go out there and see how much you can take from the fewest number of people, but see how little you can take from the most number of people. Get more people biking out there be true to your customers true to yourself you got to be true to yourself you got to get up and you ask what keeps me up at night if i'm awake longer than three minutes it's a miracle okay i work every day as hard as i can 
helping as smart as I can. I used to work hard. Now I'm working smart for as many people as I can for as long as I can. And I'm out like a light at night. So and I get my I try to get seven, seven and a half hours so that I can be gangbusters all day here. I'm a textbook case of ADHD without medication. It helps me here because I can relate to a lot of different kinds of people and I can relate to different situations and I can play different parts. When you're doing good work and you're you're being a quality person, you don't have any stresses to keep you up at night, right? You know, you're doing good stuff. <laughs> and I got to keep throwing it out to you. Before you did this, what you're doing is a miracle. You're changing. You and your people there are changing lives. This is my element. You have helped me find my element. And that's come from a 55-year veteran of this industry. Somebody one-fourth my age comes along and gets all this going. It's amazing. <laughs> Thanks. I truly care. I really like, it means the world to me. So when you first appeared and I said, Oh, not again, (laughs) Mr. Cynic came. I said, really 30 years ago, they did this thing. We're hiring an executive director, Glenn Bostrom or something. Nice guy. But why did we have to hire an executive director? And he didn't do anything, but executive direct. Okay. You are a peer. Okay. I get, you're still on the bike thing. You still work on bikes. I well, not very good, but I do. Yes, <laughs> I do. One week here, you will learn. Okay, how to fix oh, a bike. I, and I own a shop, Larry, and I was the mechanic, and I fixed my kids' bikes, and I fixed my bike. How do you own a bike shop? I thought I they to, owned you. I used to own. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> That's one of mine. I know. I like it. <laughs> All right. So, if people want to learn more, if they have questions, which I'm sure. Can we share your contact information, Larry? And I also recommend don't get a stupid email address that you have to spell and write to everybody. Larry at bike123.com. Don't do the cutesy stuff, okay? In business, that doesn't work. You drop it when you apply to college. You drop the cutesy, okay? And um, Larry at bike123.com. Our website is as easy to remember as 123. And it's the remnants of what my son designed when he was 15. He actually started the thing and put it together. So he went on to bigger and better things. The last thing I'd want my do is have my kids get into this racket. So where is Linda, Larry? Is she in the stores too? or? Oh, try that sometime. <laughs> try that sometime. It's better to be. <laughs> she is in her office. Now, she took my class. She accompanies me on these it's a tough job, but somebody's have to do it. We've gone on 23 international trips with Santana. She plays hostess and I play mechanic. Okay. They don't pay me, but I don't have to pay them. And we fix bikes in the field and it's all river cruises and ocean cruises now. So you get up in the morning at 7:30, eat a huge breakfast. You ride your bike all day. You can meet the ship for lunch or it's five figures a person, double occupancy, but these people, they can afford it. And I'd rather them do that than a uh, Janaire's cruise with a th- the, the ships are usually between 50 and 100 people, okay? And someone's got to do that job. So she goes on those trips. So she's learned enough about how to take care of bikes on this. She can put pedals on and off, okay? She knows how to charge her e-bike, okay? And she's up till two, sometimes three in the morning, making up for all the mischief that we create here like bills. And she'll sleep till 10, 30, 11. She gets claimed seven hours, but I think it's less. And uh, she, she spends time at the home. They call it the home office. Okay. And comes in here from time to time, but not often. One of her friends, Beth, who's been helping her with as assistant secretary for years, Beth 
comes in here. Beth's 50-something, comes in here once or twice a week, helps me operate the cash register, does some inventory work, gets accused of being my wife sometime. And she's also our gardener at home. She likes to work in uh, organic gardening at home. So that's what Linda does. It doesn't come in here. And we go out tandeming sometime, but she likes her little recumbent bike and I do my biking. That's where she is. But she's still the Veep and uh, keeps the bills paid. Keeps the bills paid. Keeps is the most important. Larry, I hope to meet her soon for sure. So for our listeners, bike123.com. Yeah, and you can hit the contact button or Larry at. Yeah, and I urge you to check out the website. Check out the missus from Larry. There's some really great stuff on the website, bike123.com. Larry, thank you for coming on this on and talking with me and giving me so much. In addition to contacting me that way, we welcome visitors. And we do have work-study programs for anybody in the bike industry. You can come here and jump in with both feet, including you. Thank you. Yeah, and if you're an MBDA member, come up to a Monday Mingle and you'll get to meet Larry face-to-face. Oh, those are great. Those are great. And I plug the chat button in. And when I get a phone with a better speaker, I'll be able to participate a little bit more. I love that. So that is it. I invite you to connect with me. Come on Bicycle Retail Radio and share your story with our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Share your favorite episode with friends on social media. The MBDA does appreciate your support and we thank you for listening. And with this, we go. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com.